Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by Peter Rabover, who is the founder and portfolio manager of Artco Capital. Peter likes to focus on smaller companies and special situations within a concentrated portfolio. In this episode, Peter discusses his investment style and the situations and the companies he likes to invest in. He also provides a breakdown of his thesis for investing in two small caps that he thinks can generate great returns. I really enjoyed listening to him and I think you will too. Before we begin, make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. Every so often we publish exclusive interviews that are only available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, let's jump into this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Peter. Hi, Peter. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Nice to be here, John. Thanks for having me. I've been um, following your work for a while now, so it's um, great to have you on. But for those who may not be familiar, can you give a brief overview of what you do and what is your investing style? Sure. So I am, I guess, the managing director and portfolio manager at Artco Capital, and we are a microcap ish, I guess, focused partnership. The actual, I would say, focus is to invest in unindexable securities, given the competition that's about 90% of the market in index funds. Uh, I wanted to create something that would give clients, uh, potential clients access to the other part of the market that's not available to index. And obviously for that, we have to be small. We're about um, $11 million with about 48, 49 partners. My style is concentrated in value. I, I look for low permanent capital risk and look for high upsides, you know, so both on the risk reward and uh, downside basis, I tend to be a value investor. What type of businesses do you kind of seek? Is there certain characteristics or business models or perhaps industries you focus on? You know, I, I, I would say I'm pretty open to lots of things. Uh, there's I, probably better to name things that I won't invest in, but even there once in a while, I'll, I'll find things. But, you know, I, I guess I would say my biggest characteristic is just looking at strong balance sheets, right? Just making sure the assets are worth something, making sure there's something to backstop the equity value. There might be volatility in the short run where the assets will, the price will drop below the asset value. But in the long run, your capital, permanent capital loss is limited to to what the asset value is. And so if you're buying things at asset value or below or right above it, you know, that tends to limit your capital losses. And that's kind of, I guess, how I view it. But I, I guess I would say with 20 some years experience in the market, there's an art to valuing things in the balance sheet and not just seeing them for the numbers or for the footnotes. You know, lots of times there might be hidden assets. There might be something that is just listed as another asset, but realistically, it's it's worth a lot more. Or the IP, you know, intellectual property is worth a lot more than the written down Goodwill version on the balance sheet. Or the brand name is worth a lot more than it doesn't show up on the balance sheet. So I, I guess those would be the kind of analysis I would like to do on the downside, and that's where I tend to focus. Okay. Yeah, I was just reading your latest letter, and I was 
looking at some of the companies you mentioned there. How do you find these companies? How do you generate your investment ideas? I think it's pretty diversified, uh, I guess. I uh, Sometimes I'll just use the basic screen and just screen for cheapness and you know go from there. You know, I think over the years, I've developed a pretty good network of like-minded investors who invest in the same style in the same area. And so we'll occasionally share ideas. Um, there are certainly great websites that, you know, great discourse where you can find ideas like uh, Value Investors Club or Twitter, even Twitter. You know, sometimes it would be a personal experience. You know, I, one of the bigger successes I had was a company called Joint Chiropractic. And, uh, but I found it because I had a back issue about three or four years ago and I was really researching the, the lower, lower back pain space, uh, both for myself and just kind of came across that company. So uh, I guess I would say the key is to being open to being diversified. Okay. And how diversified is your portfolio at the moment? How many stocks do you normally hold at any one time? You know, and I think, uh, so the short answer, I think it's 10 right now, maybe 11. And I think in the past, what I've done is I've tried to stratify it and kind of in that 80% uh, percent range would be the core portfolio with about, you know, eight to 12 positions at uh, eight to 10% and then kept like the other 20% as kind of an enhanced portfolio version where you take smaller bets, like, you know, one to 3%, you know, those might be a little riskier, like warrants or something like that, you know, but they have a higher payoff, like 10 to one. And so I think what I've found in the past is maybe me, maybe, maybe it's just the market, but I'm, the core portfolio investments have returned significantly more than the enhanced portfolio investments. So I've almost, you know, I'm much more, instead of focusing on finding these high risk reward ideas, I'm almost, I've decided to make it maybe more 90 to 10% of core portfolio than enhanced portfolio and maybe add one new core position. So it's just a style difference, but I just haven't found that many good risk rewards now. I think when the market crash comes and then there's a lot of these warrants of these SPACs uh, that are, you know, out there, you know, when it all washes out, I think there might be some interesting special situations that that part of the portfolio could be bigger again. And so maybe the number of stocks would be, you know, 15 to 20 instead of just 10. So that's kind of, uh, I hope that's a long way of answering your question. Are you finding it a struggle to find good situations or good stocks at reasonable prices at the moment? I mean, I think in I think in my space, there's still stuff that's fairly that can be cheap. But you know, I think uh, uh, the other side of the coin is why is it cheap that whenever everything else is going up? Fortunately, that's just a part of the market that doesn't get touched by market flows that could pers persist for a long time. And yeah, I, I would say there's still cheapness there, but that's kind of the problem is that it might stay cheap. Can you talk about two stocks that you're really bullish on? And what was the thesis for investing? Yeah, sure. Uh, so one uh, just reported today, uh, September 14th. It's uh, called Currency Exchange International. It trades on the Canadian Stock Exchange under the ticker CXI and on the US over-the-counter exchange under the ticker CURN. 
it originally started out as a foreign exchange kiosk company. So, you know, you go to a big mall in New York City somewhere or, or like Los Angeles and, you know, there'll be a currency exchange kiosk and probably seen them at the airports or uh, which up until post-COVID, they have not operated in, but they've taken over those kiosks as a franchisor once their biggest competitor, TravelX, have left the, has left the United States. And, you know, as a note, like those leases were very expensive and they were they're pretty capital allocation conscious. And uh, so they have not, in the history, have invested in airports. But, you know, that's a really nice business. It's kind of a, it's a somewhat cyclical seasonal business. But in 2019, it got up to about $42 million in revenues and the company made $6 million in free cash flow off of that number. Now, the other thing business that they've done, which in 2019 was a zero revenue business or very little, um, they've built up this software that helps banks and large corporate customers manage their foreign currency exchange needs. If you're some company and you're ordering and you know something from China and China wants something in yuan, you know how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you transfer payments in yuan to from a, you know province in Canada or you know or Oklahoma? So that's where these guys come in. They really help banks with their compliance and transaction needs. And most of the banks have exited the foreign exchange space due to high regulatory costs. And that's a really nice business that. You know, this quarter they just reported uh, a 2.5 million dollar revenue, uh, growing. You know, in the hundreds of you know triple digits, and that business didn't exist in 2019, and now it's at a run rate of 10 million. I honestly found this business through a screening tool, and it was trading 70 or 65 percent of its net cash. It was uh, post COVID. Its market cap was about forty-two million or forty forty million, and it had sixty-five million dollars in cash on the balance sheet. I kind of looked into it, and I just thought, yeah, that's a business that's going to survive. It's uh, it could, at the very worst, it'll just bounce up to its net asset value at some point. Uh, but I clearly was interested in more than that. The price now is still it's about a sixty million dollar market cap company with. Uh, $58 million in uh, net cash on the balance sheet. If in 2019, it made uh, $6 million off of $42 million revenue run rate, you know, during the pandemic, the, C, you know, the CEO who owns close to 30% of the company was able to cut $10 million of fixed costs off of the company's uh, SG&A. This is a company that if it gets back to its pre-COVID numbers in the 40s, $40 million in uh, banknote business, and gets up to $20 to $30 million in the payments business, which it very well might in the next uh, two to three years, you know, this is a company that could make 30, up to $30 million in free cash flow in, in the next two to three years that you were able to buy for $40 million. That's a pretty, I'm pretty confident in that thesis. It's going really well. They reported really great numbers today and, uh, and they're, you know, they're back to being cash flow profitable again. And, and that's just with very low uh, COVID numbers, uh, you know, travel COVID numbers. And so it's going pretty well. Valuation there looks very enticing. 
Thanks for sharing that on, Peter. And, and how about an, another company that you're on, bullish on? I guess another one that I really like, I think it's gotten uh, that people have not liked in the past, but it's, uh, I've been very bullish on it. In fact, it's, I've held it since day one of launching the partnership for about six years. Uh, it's called Gaia. And they are essentially a streaming service of I and other people might refer to as weird content. You know, it used to be more yoga. Now it's more holistic health, you know, uh, psychedelic stuff, mind expansion. They get into weird conspiracy theories. It's a niche market, but it's a very large market. You know, and the company has uh, almost 800,000 subscribers paying over $11 uh, a month for, for its content and growing at about 20, 25% a year. The kind of the history behind it is their, their CEO and founder, Yorka Risavi, you know, he's kind of been a serial entrepreneur. He founded Corporate Express that he sold to Staples. He founded Wild Oats, which he sold to Whole Foods. Some about 10 years back, he founded Gaiam, uh, which was a clothing brand, clothing and yoga brand, which he later sold to Sequential Brands. And then he used the money from Gaiam to grow the streaming service, which now is known as Gaia, which, you know, about six years ago had about 22,000 subscribers. And now we're at, like I said, close to 800,000. It's probably going to hit about $80 million in revenue this year. This guy's clearly been a serial entrepreneur. He knows, you know, he owns a substantial part of the company. I've had really good conversations with him. I, I guess I would say the question people usually ask is like, you know, why the company that's going to make 80 million in revenue, probably 35 in EBITDA and uh, 12, 13 in free cash flow this year. And it's trading at about a $150 million valuation right now, 160. And it's kind of been range bound for many years. And people would ask, you know, why is that? What's happening here? I, and I think there's a number of reasons why it's cheap. I think in the past, they have invested heavily in growth. And as a result of that, they have um, acquired some subscribers that were less than stellar. They had a very high disconnect rate. Um, over the last uh, two and a half years where they've sort of committed to getting to profitability with lower growth, they have held their quarterly spend steady at $15 million uh, fixed cost, 15 to $16 million fixed costs, while growing their revenue in the 25 to 30% uh, growth rate uh, and, and their subscribers in the 20s plus some price increases. And so uh, they've been fairly consistent with that. You know, they're free cash flow positive now. And so I, I believe that black mark from three years ago should be gone, but some people are still very um, worried about that. Uh, on the other hand, some people just are not comfortable with the co content. You know, it's just outside their wheelhouse. And, you know, it's weird conspiracy theories about aliens and mind expansion. And that's hard for some people to, uh, to comprehend that there's a market like that. There's people that think differently from them. And I'm kind of agnostic in that. I don't need to believe what, uh, what they're selling. I just need to believe that there's a lot of people out there that want that content. I think the two knocks on that were there's 
just there's been belief that the market's not large enough, and it clearly is, be that that content is going to get them deplatformed in this age of cancel culture uh, from places like Amazon hosting them. I don't know if those are fair criticisms. I, I think the market is fairly significant for their streaming services. Certainly randomly have known of lots of friends that have been Gaia subscribers without me ever having to tell them. I've done enough surveys to appreciate the size of the market. You know, as far as deplatforming goes, I, I think that's a pretty low risk. It's a risk. Their headquarters are in the uh, former EDS building, and they've been very focused on hosting their own content, not being able to get booted from Amazon or something like that, sort of have this technical technological independence. And like I said, I think it's a minuscule risk. I think it's less than 1% of this happening, but it's good to know that they're focused on this tail risk. With all that, at about a $150 million valuation, you know, I had sort of mentioned that I like things with hidden assets. And about five uh, years ago, they made a $10 million investment into, uh, into something what they would call an other asset. And as a result, they've had to sign an NDA. And so the history of Yorka is what he likes to do is incubate companies within his own companies. Like, right. So just like the Gaia brand was incubated within the Gaia clothing yoga brand was incubated. He incubated an eco-friendly travel tourism business, which also got sold uh, at the same time as the uh, clothing brand. That's kind of been his MO. But they've been very cagey because of the NDA to talk about this other asset. I know it's a 10% ownership in a, in a international tech company. And every year, and it was made at, you know, in, in the nine-figure valuation range back then. Every year, this asset has to be tested for impairment. So it's never been written down by the auditors or anybody like that. In the age where every tech company with a pulse gets an immediate unicorn valuation, you know, they've kind of committed to talking about it once the NDA runs out. I think, you know, sometime in 2021, you're going to see them, you know, revalue this asset to what it is along the lines of where current tech companies uh, stand. I think between growth being incredibly cheap. I mean, this company is trading, I think, like seven times next year's EBITDA for a very profitable, growing cash flow in business. I think that's a ridiculous valuation it, when its competitors uh, with you know much less profitability and growth are trading in some hard to use EBITDA here because lots of them are just trade off of you know revenue multiples of six, seven, eight. And this company is at two times revenue multiple. So I think at less than $10 per share, I think you're going to see in the next 12 to 24 months, it re-rating to $30 to $50. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing um, that company as well, Peter. Where can listeners go to find out more information about you? Probably just email if you're a qualified investor, uh, you know, and unfortunately it was a general partnership that's we're not an RIA, you know, we can only, I can only take qualified investors. Info at Artco Capital, A-R-T-K-O Capital would be the best place to 
reach out for documents. And, you know, if you have a question for me, Peter at Arco Capital can certainly be a, a good substitute. Okay, Peter, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure to have you on. Yeah, pleasure's uh, all on this side of the pond.